At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Unstoppable, Bound in His Love, Freed by His Spirit, where we're journeying through what many call the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans 8, to uncover a more lasting force than hard work and a more enduring purpose than momentary success. Well, good morning. Thank you for the six of you that said it back to me. I appreciate that. Um, it's barely the morning. Like, how are you guys asleep? No, <laughs> if you don't know me, uh, my name is Ben Orr. I serve here on staff as the student ministries director. Um, it's a job that I absolutely love and, and cherish that God has placed me in this role. Um, if you want me to get into any more detail than that, you have to meet me outside in the hallway after service just because we do have a lot of content to get through and I don't want to go too long and end up uh, losing most of you guys to the, the hunger rumbles, right? I don't want to uh, start seeing phones come out where you're placing phone orders uh, by the end of the service. So, uh, uh, let me dive right in. So often uh, myself and, and others who, who uh, join me on stage to, to preach and to share God's word, um, what we like to tend to do is, is to start a sermon with a, a cute story or a, a relevant fact, something to help engage all of you into, into where we're headed, where the, where the sermon is going. Well, I'm going to tell you this morning that this sermon requires absolutely no witty tactic to, to gather your attention here. No, instead, I want to sum up for you what we've been learning over these past few months. Dating back to September, we started a series called Newish. And that series went for seven or eight weeks, diving into Romans 5 through 7. And then we went into our series that we're in today called Unstoppable, where we're diving exclusively into Romans 8. And so Paul shares a lot with us about what it means to be in Christ. And so church, if you don't mind with me, I want to ask a favor of you. I want to ask you all to just close your eyes and listen to the life that the gospel of Jesus invites you into. Because of Jesus, you can have peace with God. Think about that. You weren't at peace. You and God were against each other, but now... The war is over. And what's more, you now have access by faith to stand in God's presence by his grace. God welcomes you in to his holy and perfect presence. And it's not like you just get to tag along. You're not just an outsider in the entourage that is God's. No, God doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you. He showed the immensity of his love for you by dying for you. Because he died for you, you are now justified. Every sin expunged in the heavenly courts, a final eternal pronouncement, you are not guilty. And formerly under the guilty judgment, sin reigned in death. But now, now grace reigns and abounds to eternal life in Jesus. And that controlling manipulative enemy of sin was finally put to death. It no longer has power over you. Sin can't control you because you are under grace. And the life that you're living is on a path toward eternal life. And that eternal life is a great promise for someday. But it's not just a someday promise. You now live by the Spirit. You cannot be condemned. You are set free from the law of sin and death. You now have life today in the spirit. And more than just life, you're adopted. 
God bends towards you and embraces you with all the love and all the joy of a father. And it's his pleasure to make you his heir and to transform this world through you. Because God looks at you like a proud dad and you're his child, the spirit intercedes for you. And the father is turning all things to your good so that he carries you safely to the end of this story. His glory in bringing you to glory. You can open your eyes. Church, this is the life of all of those who are in Christ. Do you know that life? Have you experienced that life? Well, church, today's passage is meant to be a a, a final uh, conclusion, a, a summing up of everything you just heard. And before we get to our passage this morning, I want to pose the same question that Paul poses to his audience in the church at Rome as this passage begins. And that's the question, what then shall we say to these things? So again, church, that's my question to you. In light of everything you just heard, in light of what you just took in with your eyes closed, in light of what you've heard about the life of the believer, what then do you say to these things? Church, there is a right answer. There is a right answer, and it's this. You see, theologians, they they think about the promises of God to the believer through the phrase, already not yet. Already not yet. And the idea behind that is that we as Christians, we believe in the already. We believe that Jesus has already come, that Jesus has already paid for the penalty of sin on the cross. Victory has already been claimed. And yet we wait for the not yet. We wait because Christ has not yet returned to claim the spoils of his victory. We wait for the not yet because sin has not finally been eradicated. Temptations that we wrestle with and the sin-saturated world that we live in has not yet been cleansed, has not been fully redeemed. But the two problems in that way of thinking come when we separate the two. When we take either the not, the already or the not yet. You see, if we live in an already, if we live, think, and pray in an already theology, then we can't account for suffering in the world. You see, our pursuit for what it means to know and understand the death and the resurrection of Jesus, when our, our theolo- theology ends there, we can't account for what's happening today. In saying that, no, what's been done, what's already happened is the be-all, end-all of the Christian faith. And at the same time, if we live, think, and pray in an exclusively not yet theology, then we separate ourselves from the love and the power of God. We surrender all the joy and all the hope of things that have already happened that push us forward in our hope for things to come. We experience an anemic faith that makes no space for the Spirit's movements. Joy shrivels Laws replace the spirit and we once again submit to a brand new yoke of slavery. So, what then shall we say? The key to living in this already not yet tension is to put our hope in Jesus who has proved in the already what he's capable of in the not yet. And that's where Paul turns our attention as he builds to this this final climax here at the end of Romans Eight. This is the bookend to the first half of Romans where Paul has just been dropping major bombs on his audience at the church at Rome. 
And so as you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, where we're going to be residing this morning, let me bring you fully up to speed. You see, we know God is writing a truly amazing story through the lives of faithful believers and the redeeming work that he's doing through them. But Paul here describes the season that we find ourselves in as the pains of childbirth. We saw that in verse 22. Now you can ask any mother here in the room and she'll tell you that's not what you want to describe your life. That's not the best way to describe someone's life is the pains of childbirth. But in those pains of childbirth, that, that pain of childbirth, it's pregnant with the hope of what awaits us on the other side. So what then do we say as the chosen children of God in a world caught in the labor pangs of rebirth? We find the answer to that as our big idea this morning, which is simply this. We conquer by the God who loves us. That's what we as Christians say. We conquer by the God who loves us. Let's take a deeper look at what that means. Romans 8, starting in verse 31, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You see, we experience that conquering love of God when we cling to the the truth of who we are in Christ. And so through a series of rhetorical questions, Paul drives home three truths that if we cling to those, if we hold on tight to these truths, then we will experience being held tighter than imaginable in the love of God. And our first truth is this. Who can be against us? No one. Who can be against us? No one. Let's look back at our text at verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christian, do you question God's ability to to help you recover from a, a gambling addiction, from an alcohol addiction? Do you question God's ability to reunify and reinvigorate your marriage? Or do you question God's ability to finally bring you back to a place that you haven't felt in years, decades even, to a place where you finally feel loved again? Do you question God's ability to do that? Well, let me encourage you to look to the empty tomb 
Look to the empty tomb. Church, we are loved by a God who breathes dead bones into life. We are loved by a God who reincarnates, or excuse me, reanimates lifeless flesh and reincarnates it into bodies of glory. Church, he is able and you are not beyond his love. There's nothing you can do to escape God's love. And that's the first reason that we have in having hope in our brokenness. And the second reason that we can hold on to hope is, to the, is the extent to which God has gone to love us. You see, it's not that simply he has the power to save us. He does. But it's the measure of his love that compels him to save us. In verse 32, Paul encourages us, when we feel beyond the love of God, Paul encourages us to pause and to consider the greatest demonstration of his love. Church, he gave his son for you. If he's not willing to hold back his son, what will he hold back? I think of it this way. I'm sure we have some folks in the audience who might be a, a car guy or a car lady. And so I think, I like to think of it this way. Let's say you've been saving up most of your life, your whole life even, for your dream car. Maybe it's, maybe when you were a, a kid, you saw that old school Ford Bronco and you're like, that new one came out, you're like, that's, that's it. Maybe from the time you were young, you've always wanted a Lamborghini or a, a Tesla, I don't know. And so, for most of your life, you've pinched every penny. You've ate nothing but rice and beans for the last 15 years. You've, you started working a second job. You opened up a second mortgage. You emptied out your 401k. Church, these are very bad ideas. But that's my point. You've given up so much. And now your dream car has finally arrived. And so you're sitting at that table at the dealership, ready to sign on that dotted line. And the dealer says, oh, I'm so sorry. Just one more thing. I completely forgot Before you can take this car, there is a $100 title transfer fee that still needs to be taken care of. Church, is that going to be a problem? Is that going to keep you uh, away from the table? Is that going to send you home? No, of course not. As far as you've gone to this point and as much as you've sacrificed, there's no way a little title transfer fee is going to be what keeps you from driving that car out of that dealership. You'll beg, borrow, or steal to make that happen, but you will get there. That's how we need to think about God's love for us. You see, when we find ourselves doubting his love or questioning his goodness toward us, when we're in a moment of pain and heartache, remember what he gave up for you. He took on flesh. Jesus poured himself out and took on the form of sinful man. He walked the arid desert to the Holy Land His body hungered and thirsted as he felt the the need for sustenance, something he had not experienced in his time in heaven. He slept through rough, rainy nights. And then he submitted himself to the shame of the cross. Choosing to participate in a death he never deserved while his earthly mother watched, horrified at her son's agony. Remember what Jesus went through to bring you into his family. That's how much God loves you. 
Remember the power of the resurrection that emptied the tomb three days later. That's the power of the God who loves you. And so once again, who, who can be against us? No one. Who can stand against such power and such love? Don't give up hope. No one can stand against us. The truth of God's love in our lives, it's powerful. More powerful than we can ever imagine, but it's also easy to to misunderstand or to, to misappropriate. So let me be very clear on what I'm not saying when I tell you that no one can stand against us. I'm not saying that life will be or feel perfect. Life will hurt. We're gonna stumble. We're gonna bear insults. We're gonna give in to sin. But it's in life's darkest moments that we don't lose hope. Because we have two promises of what it means that no one can stand against us. And those two promises are given to us as Paul's next two questions. And so our next point is this. Who will bring a charge against us? Who will bring a charge against us? No one. Let's look back at the text, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Church, I don't know about you, but these two verses, in my head, they paint a a, a mental picture of a, a heavenly courtroom using words like bring charges condemn, justify. But before we get there, I want to be very clear on exactly what this scripture is saying, what Paul is actually trying to tell his readers. You see, that phrase, bring charges or bring charge, in the original Greek, it wasn't meant to be this blanket statement over all of God's people. It was much more personal than that. Essentially, Paul is saying, who can bring a charge against me as God's elect? Who could bring a charge against you as God's elect? So along with the Apostle Apostle Paul, let's now enter God's courtroom to help us answer that question, who can bring a charge against me as God's elect? So Christian, imagine yourself sitting there at the defense table. Your lawyer sits beside you at the same table and across the aisle sits the prosecution And they're called to name their first witness against you and they don't stop at one. Every person you've ever harmed comes forward and names their vendetta. Every thought that's made you shudder in self-disgust has now been illuminated. Every rash, angry response is replayed. Every overt rebellion is retold. Every opportunity that you failed to, quoting Micah 6, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God is brought forward with the devastating effects of your negligence. So finally, after who knows how long, finally the prosecution rests. Your defense lawyer scoots back his chair. He approaches the judge and stands in the middle of an open courtroom and offers only one piece of evidence on your behalf. He raises his hand and light from the window shines through the blood-soaked hole And he says one soft but simple thing. My client is guilty. I've paid for their guilt. Do 
not only does the Spirit intercede for us, but the glorified Christ as well. So the judgment is done. God's action as judge is complete. His wrath has been poured out, not on you, not on the deserving party, but on his one and only son. You see, church, what defines us is not the charges levied against us. What defines us is God's possession of us. So what then, when we hear those, the prosecution's witnesses, what then when we feel the sting of our pain, what do we do? What do we do when we feel our own sin bearing down, pressing us further down into the ground? What do we do? Church, we worship. We worship the God the Father for the depth of his love and injustice. We worship the Son for the immensity of his sacrifice. And we worship both the Son and the Spirit for their unfaltering advocacy on our behalf. And in our worship... In our worship, we turn. We turn from our shame. We turn from our sin. We turn from our, our temptations. And the shadow of our brokenness is driven away by the light of the love of God. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. This is good news. Arguably the best news ever. But we need to remember, church, that life is more than a courtroom. Life is more than just our own personal experiences, what we deal with on a daily basis. How do we explain the suffering? How do we explain the sickness, the famine, the persecution that happens here locally and around the globe? What do we have to say to that? That brings us to Paul's next question. Who shall separate us from Christ's love? Nothing and no one. Let's look back at the text, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This final question that Paul asks, it brings, it begins with the observation of the personal love that Jesus has for us. And it's important that we understand the personal nature of Jesus' love. And it's important that we grasp that as we consider what could possibly tear us from it. Jesus loves you. Right? We know that. We've sung that since we were little kids. Sure, Jesus does love you. He loves humanity. He loves creation. He loves you as members of those groups. But church, his love for you is so much more than a group love. He sees you and he loves you. He sees you and he loves you. He sees your tribulation. He sees your distress, your persecution, your famine, your nakedness, your danger, and your enemies. He sees it all and he is compelled toward you in love. What can separate you from the loving pursuit of the risen lamb? Nothing. 
He who overcame death is able to overcome your trial as well. But there is a tension that we feel in that statement. Paul brings it up as he addresses, as he quotes Psalm 44. The resurrected king is pursuing us in love, and yet, quote, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This verse is a bit of an interruption in Paul's flow of thought, and one that's pretty typical for Paul. You see, he is constantly concerned to show that the sufferings experienced by Christians should be no surprise. Here, Paul quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, to show, as Calvin puts it, that it is no new thing for the Lord to permit his saints to be undeservedly exposed to the cruelty of the ungodly. Christian faith is not a head-in-the-sand kind of faith. We shouldn't be surprised by suffering. Instead, when we experience suffering, we need to see beyond it to the God who saves and to the end that he will write. And this is why Paul brings up Psalm 44. He brings it up as a counter-argument, just like he has in, in bringing up these oppositional questions throughout our passage this morning, throughout the entire book of Romans. He addresses it so that he can reject it. And he does so by calling us more than simply conquerors. More than conquerors. Church, look at your history books. Look at the cultural landscape today. Who are the names that continue to always rise to the surface? Our history books name Napoleon, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great. We look out today and we see names like Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, conquerors in their own context. These are some of the most powerful men in all of history. And yet, Paul, even at a time when Caesar was a household name, Paul says we're far greater than that. We're more than conquerors. We're more than simply victorious. Our victory stretches far beyond anything that these men could ever or will ever achieve. And even in death, that still describes you. Why? Why? Even in death, church, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, the love of Christ is the instrument of our victory. God's love is the guarantee of our victory. And so, in one final flurry, Paul now drives our victory home in a series of couplets. Neither death, nor life, nor anything in between will be able to separate you from Jesus' love. Neither angels, nor rulers, nor any other power is strong enough to pry you from his embrace. Neither things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we think of our salvation, though, when we think about our ultimate victory and our, our new life in Christ, we often think of it as something that's fragile, something delicate. And we, we tend to think of it that way because we, we th assume that God's affection for us is dependent on our actions. Church, you are not saved based on what you've done. You are saved based on the love God has for you. Nothing can touch your salvation because nothing is greater than the love of God. And so if God is our father, 
if he has adopted us in Christ, what could remove him? Do you remember how you thought of your dad when you were young? If you grew up with a good, present father, you probably thought of him as someone strong, someone who could protect you, someone who could solve all your problems. Now, as we grew, we understood that our human fathers have human limitations. But that childlike, in that childlike trust, there's still a kernel of our relationship with our heavenly father. You see, that basic childlike belief of my daddy could beat up your daddy, in that basic belief is the confidence that we should have in our heavenly father because he is God. He has defeated every enemy and he will never, ever be defeated. Now church, the truth of Romans 8, it should swell our hearts. It was written and designed to excite those who read it. And so church, I'm going to ask you to do something just a little bit different as we conclude this morning. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. So go ahead and stand with me right now. And as you're standing, these truths that we've discussed, these truths that Paul has laid out for us, they need to sink down into the soil of our hearts so that they can spring up and bear fruit in every season. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to follow me as I repeat these truths. I'm going to repeat these truths to you, and I want you to fire the answer right back at me. And so if you lost track at any point, if you maybe dozed off for a couple minutes and missed the second point or whatever, we'll have them on the board for you so you don't get lost. But church, don't be quiet. Don't be calm. Shout with the confidence of someone who knows the all-consuming, more-than-conquering love of God. So church, who can stand against us? Amen. Who can bring a charge against us? And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Amen, amen, amen. Church, let's pray. Our holy and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the love that you offer us. For a love that's far beyond anything that we could ever imagine or attain on our own power. Thank you for the love that sacrificed his son that would spare no expense to reach any and all who would come to him. So God, this morning I pray for for those in here who are believers, for those in here who have a relationship with you, that God, that you would stir in them a confidence, that you would open their eyes to the needs of this world and the confidence that comes and with knowing your word and their willingness to step out boldly and proclaim that word to the masses. God, I pray for any in here who, who do know you, but maybe haven't had a relationship for a while. Maybe haven't come to you in a while. God, I pray in those instances that you would shine a light on your love for them. That you would, that would open their hearts to see your warm embrace staring right back at them. That they would come back to know you and feel that more than conquering love. And lastly, church, I pray for any in here who might not know you. And maybe, maybe everything we've talked about is a little confusing. 
But God, I pray as we sing, as we finish out our service this morning, that you would enter their heart and stir in them a need, a desire to know a little bit more about you. And so I pray that after we're done singing, when the service ends, that they would come forward and find one of these individuals who wants nothing more than to just pray with them, to help them understand. So church, I'm sorry, God, in a, a, in a weekend full of thankfulness, we offer our highest gratitude for everything that you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, let's sing together with that same confidence. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.